All right, we're continuing together our study in chapter 30 of our Confession of Faith dealing with um, the Lord's Supper. And, and because the paragraph opened with the Supper of the Lord Jesus, that phrase, we've been talking about the titles and names that are given to um, the Lord's Supper. And uh, we said that there were eight of them. There are four uh, that are ecclesiastical terms, that is terms the church has used to describe uh, the Lord's Supper, but are not found in the Bible. And then there are four of them that uh, are biblical that we do find in the Bible to describe this ordinance. And the reason why we're spending some time on the names is because um, the names convey a lot of information about the ordinance. Now, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And uh, hopefully as we do so, these names will, will really be um, something that, that uh, becomes very vivid to you uh, because we will be um, participating in and, 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 and recognizing the principles that lie behind all eight of those names today as we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. And so the first name that we looked at was uh, was the ecclesiastical term ordinance, which simply means that which is ordained by God, uh, a law that's established by God. And uh, then we looked at the word Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving. It says of our Lord Jesus that when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and gave it to them. And the Greek word there is Eucharisteo, uh, from which we get our English word Eucharist. And so the Lord's Supper is a time of thanksgiving. And then... There was the word, <clears throat> pardon me, the word sacrament, uh, which means uh, something which is set apart as sacred. And we talked about the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper, that it's not uh, a mere consumption, consumption of nutrition, but that there is something entirely different about this meal uh, versus all other meals that uh, we may consume. And uh, that it has a special symbolic meaning and uh, it's not just merely for meeting our nutritional needs. And then there was the, the fourth word, mass, that we looked at, which comes from the Latin word missa, which means to be dismissed. And uh, those who are not qualified to receive the Lord's Supper were dismissed from partaking of it because only baptized believers in Jesus Christ are uh, proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. And so there is an act of dismissal in which those who are not qualified are dismissed from partaking of uh, the Lord's Supper. We then began last week to look at the biblical terms, and we saw that the first term that we looked at was that of the Lord's Supper. And we said that it was a meal that belongs to the Lord. It is a meal that is for the Lord. It is a meal that is provided by the Lord. And of course, it's a meal that is distinct from all other meals, another idea that we said was wrapped up in the word sacrament. We then looked at the word uh, communion, and that's the word koinonia or fellowship. And we saw that the Lord's Supper is called a communion service, or we could say a fellowship service. And the question is, is who are we having fellowship with? Now, when you invite some people over to your house and you sit down to a meal, that's a a, a communal meal and that you're having fellowship with the people that you're at the table with. And so we commune with 
the Lord Jesus Christ primarily. We're coming to his table. Um, we're sitting at his dinner and we're eating what he has provided. And so we're communing with him. And then, of course, we're communing with each other as well, because all of us are members one of another, as well as members of Jesus Christ. And then we concluded last time with a third biblical term, and that's the term the Lord's table. And uh, we uh, kind of were rushed a little bit at the end. Um, there's a couple of other passages that I kind of skipped, and I'd like to look at again. Uh, so, so I want to look at this, this, um, this term uh, again uh, and, and, and look at those passages as well. So um, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21. And we said that uh, the Lord's table um, is a, a term that is used because of the fact that common meals were of great significance in biblical times. And so we don't tend to um, place the significance uh, that others did in eating together because, you know, food was something that was very scarce in biblical times and eating food was something that was a very significant act and it carried a weighty symbolic meaning uh, especially when you were eating with other people. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in verse uh, 21, it says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. And what we said is that when you spread a meal for someone, and that individual accepted your hospitality and ate your food, you were making a commitment to him and he was making a commitment to you of, uh, of uh, confederation, of loyalty, of uh, expression of purpose, that we would do them no harm, they would do us no harm, we would not do them disloyalty, they would not do us disloyalty, and so to eat a common meal was to engage in a pledge with the one that you received it from. And uh, we looked at Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 7. We looked at Psalm 41 and verse 9, passages which um, uh, made that principle uh, stand out very clearly. Let's look at the one in Psalm 41 and verse 9, uh, because it's probably... Uh, the clearest and one really that, that needs to stick in our minds regarding um, the Lord's Supper. Psalm 41 and verse 9. David here is talking about his enemies. Notice verse 5. Psalm 41, 5. Mine enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die and his name perish? Isn't that nice to have people thinking, boy, I sure hope he hurries up and dies. You know, when shall he perish? And if he come to see me, he speaks vanity. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes abroad, he tells it. All they that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease say they cleaveth fast unto him. And now he lieth and he shall rise up no more. Now here's our verse, verse 9. Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, 
has lifted up his heel against me. Now notice the three things that are tied together there. This person is a familiar friend. They are someone in whom he had placed trust. And this was someone who did eat of my bread. So what he's saying here is, is because they ate at my table and ate of my bread, they were someone who I trusted. They were someone who I counted as a friend. And so you had people you trusted and you had your friends eat at your table. And the act of eating was an expression of that trust and an expression of that friendship. And, and what he's saying is that this betrayal is especially evil because this person had eaten at his table. He didn't expect that. I mean, he expected that, yeah, the Philistines would attack him and the Amorites and, and whoever else. But for one from his own table to attack him, that was absolutely traitorous. And that's what caused um, his bitterness. And so Jesus took this very passage and he quoted it in John chapter 13 and verse 18. Turn there, please. John chapter 13 and verse 18. He quoted it with reference to Judas Iscariot. <clears throat> he just got done washing the disciples' feet, including Judas's feet, by the way. He was still there. <clears throat> and he says in John 13, 18, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And that's a quote of Psalm 41 and verse 9. Verse 19, now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And so that's when he dipped the sop and he gave it to Judas and Judas went out. And what Jesus is saying is this guy's been eating my table for three years. He was, you know, my familiar friend. You know, I trusted in him and now He's, he's, he's betraying me, okay? And so what Jesus recognized, the same principle, this fellow ate at my table, he shouldn't be turning on me, okay? Um, and so this is why, so, so when you ate at someone's table, what you were doing is you were swearing allegiance to them. These people were your friends. They could trust you. You trusted them and you were their friends, Okay, and that's why, and here's the verses I wanted to look at that we didn't last time. That's why God warned his people against partaking in heathen feasts. He says, you can't eat at the table of the heathen. You can't eat at their feasts because by eating at their table and eating at their feasts, you are saying that their gods are your friends and that you are trusting in their gods. That was the significance of eating at, at the table. So look at Exodus 34, 15. The book of Exodus. 34 and verse 15. <clears throat> we'll start out at verse 14. He says, Exodus 34, 14, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, now here it is, and thou eat of his sacrifice. So to eat 
at the table of these gods was to have them be your God. Okay? Now I'll look at Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Exodus 25. Pardon me, Numbers. Numbers 25. Verses 1 through 5. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Now, here's our verse, notice. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat. With the result that they bowed down to their gods. So once again, the idea of a meal... Uh, of, of the table of the God being associated with worship of that God and loyalty to that God is, is very clear, okay? Verse 3, here's the result. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one, his men that were joined unto Baal Peor, in other words, to those who ate with, with, uh, with those people who worshiped that God. Okay? And then the final passage is Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And verse 28. <clears throat> And this is just uh, speaking of uh, these, it's a recounting of the history of the nation of Israel, okay? And it says in, in verse 28, Psalm 106, 28, they joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead, okay? So once again, the eating of the sacrifice was a joining of oneself to that God, all right? So, um, turn back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and now we'll get what Paul is saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll look at verses 18 through 21. 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 18 to 21. Notice 1 Corinthians 10.18, Behold Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Okay, when, when you eat the sacrifice, you're worshiping at the altar. Okay? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifices to idol is anything? See, if an idol is a nullity, if it doesn't really, if, if there's not really a God behind that idol, then the idol really is nothing. Correct? Okay, since there's only one true God to worship false, God, false gods is really to worship no God at all. So he's, he's saying, look, I'm not saying there really is a God there. Okay, that's what he's saying in verse 19. He says in verse 20, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to the true God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. There's our word koinonia. There's our word communion. I don't want you to have communion with devils. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. 
You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. And so he's saying all this in terms of giving guidance about what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat and where they should and shouldn't eat and those types of things. Um, so the point is, is that the table at which you eat is the loyalty to which you are pledged. So when you eat at this table this morning, what you're engaging in is a pledging of your loyalty to Jesus Christ, to the God that's represented at this table. Okay. So by eating at the Lord's table, you are saying to the Lord that you are my familiar friend. I trust in you and you can trust me to be loyal to you and to be faithful to you. That's what you're saying when you eat at the table. And so it's a very significant statement um, that we will be loyal to him. We will be faithful to him. We will do nothing contrary to his cause or to his best interests. So uh, that makes eating at this table very significant because it's an act of commitment on your part of being loyal to Christ, of being faithful to Christ, of being a trustworthy friend of Jesus Christ. Okay. Any questions about that? Does that make sense? Okay, so <clears throat> that's the Lord's table. The fourth and final, uh, ecclesi- uh, uh, pardon me, scriptural term for um, the Lord's Supper is um, not only the Lord's Supper and um, the, um, the Lord's table and communion, but the fourth term that the Bible uses to describe the Lord's Supper is, is breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. Now, this term breaking of bread is used several places in the scripture, and we're just going to look at the passages, and then we'll talk about the meaning, okay? So let's turn to Acts 2.42. This is the day of Pentecost. This is when um, the Holy Spirit descended, remember, and they all spoke in tongues. And then Peter stands up, and he preaches this evangelistic sermon. And uh, 3,000 people get saved, right? So it says in verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word, that is Peter's evangelistic preaching, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now notice verse 42. It says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so this phrase, breaking of bread, is a reference to the communion service. Okay? And you know that when we celebrate communion, what do we do? We literally break bread. Okay? And we'll talk about the significance of that in a a minute. Let's look at a second passage, Acts 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 and 11. Paul is traveling and he has left Ephesus and uh, he's going into Macedonia and uh, they come to Troas. Now notice verse 6, Acts 20 and verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, that's after Passover, and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight, 
And that's when Eutychus fell out the window. You remember that story. Okay. But notice they met on the first day of the week. Okay. Just like we're doing, this is the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. And what did they meet for? Well, to observe the ordinances and to hear preaching. Okay. To engage in a church service. And so here, clearly, uh, the communion service is called the breaking of bread. Now, notice, if you will, uh, after Eutychus fell out the window and he was dead and Paul went down and resurrected him, verse 11, it says, And when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. So they broke bread, they ate it, and they continued on with their church service until morning. And so, you know, it would be like um, a 12-hour long church service at least because it lasted all night long. And um, probably the reason for that is many of these people were slaves and they had to uh, work during the day. And then when they got off at the end of their shift or whatever, they would go and go to church and, and do church all night long. And it may be because they had a special guest speaker, Paul, that uh, they stayed extra long. Um, but uh, in any event, here we see three clear examples of, of this, the use of this term, breaking of bread, to refer to uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, where did this phrase come from and what does it mean? Well, the term comes from the action of Christ at the Last Supper. Okay, it comes directly from the action of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. Now, notice, if you will, Matthew 26, 26. Matthew 26, 26. <clears throat> Jesus has just gotten done dismissing Judas in verse 25. And in verse 26 it says, And as they were eating, they're eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. So this term breaking of bread came from what Jesus actually did. He picked up apparently um, a piece of bread and broke it. Now, one thing we know for sure about this bread is that it was unleavened. We know that for sure because this was the Passover meal and at the Passover meal, no leaven was allowed. Okay. So it was probably kind of a flat, thin, uh, maybe a pancake shaped or wafer shaped piece of bread. Uh, much like if you rolled out um, a pie dough and, uh, you know, I, I guess um, you women sometimes make pie dough cookies. My wife does. She has an extra pie dough. She rolls it out and puts sugar and cinnamon on it and cooks it in the oven and gets it out and it's just thin and flat. And uh, is there is there leaven in pie dough? I don't think there is, is there? You gals? I don't think there's any leaven in pie dough. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of what it was like, just hard, crispy, and he picked it up and he broke it and he, and he distributed it to the disciples. So that's what happened. All right. So <clears throat> what Jesus is doing here in breaking this bread is he is referring to the breaking of his body on the cross for our redemption. Okay. That's the significance of the breaking of bread. It is a, 
um, a picture of the breaking of Christ's body on the cross. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. Okay. Now, it wasn't literally his body, and we're going to talk about that when we get to the subject of transubstantiation. I think it's in the uh, third paragraph of our, uh, of our chapter, as I recall. Um, yeah, no, it's in paragraph six, okay, where, where they talk about transubstantiation. We'll get there, okay? But when he says, this is my body, what he's saying is, is this bread symbolizes my body, and the breaking of this bread symbolizes the breaking of my body, Okay? Now, Jesus' body was not broken in the sense that his bones were broken. Indeed, the Bible makes a point of the fact that the bones of Jesus Christ were not broken. In John 19, verses 31 through 36, uh, the Pharisees wanted to get the bodies off the cross before um, nightfall, and uh, the thing about crucifixion is when you hang by your hands, okay, and your body weight is suspended off your hands, you cannot breathe hardly at all because it collapses your chest and, and your diaphragm doesn't function and all you're doing is just breathing off the top of your lungs. You can't, you know, like when you're sitting there, you can go, you know, and you push your chest out and you take a big breath of air. You cannot do that when you're hanging by your hands, okay? And, uh, and, and the only way you can is if you pull up with your hands, okay, and of course that's very painful because you've got nails through them, and, and push up with your feet, okay? So, so what they'd do is they'd hang there, okay, and they would just about asphyxiate, and then they would push up with their feet. That's why in the pictures of the crucifixion, you always see them with their, with their knees bent like, like this, okay, when they're crucified. That's so they can push up, get a breath of air or two, and then of course the pain in their feet is so bad that they drop back down, but then they can't breathe. And so they're, they're doing this. They're pushing up and down to, you know, every once in a while to try, to try to breathe. And so if you go and break their legs, they can't push up anymore. And usually by that time, their arms have been pulled out of their shoulder sockets. So they can't pull themselves up, okay? And, and as a result, they die of asphyxiation fairly quickly. That's why the soldiers went and broke the legs of the men so they would hurry up and die. And when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And the soldier, to make sure, shoved a spear up into his side, remember? And out came blood and water. And he goes, oh yeah, he is dead. We don't need to break his legs. So that's why in John 19, verses 31 to 36, it says... The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and they might be taken away, obviously, after they died. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And another scripture says they shall look on him who they pierce. So when Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. He's not talking about his bones being broken. And the reason why is because the Passover lamb that was eaten, the bones weren't broken. 
in the Passover lamb. A lot of times people would break the bones to get the marrow out, you know, because there's marrow inside the bones and it's nutritious and maybe it tastes good. I don't know. I've never eaten bone marrow. But um, anyway, um, that's what that was about. And since he was the Passover lamb, he had to fit the picture of the Passover lamb perfectly. And part of that was the Passover lamb's bones weren't broken, so neither were Jesus's bones broken. So what's this? This is my body, which is broken for you. What does that refer to? Well, his body was broken in the sense that it was separated from its operating force and energizing power, namely his soul. So the point is, is that Jesus' body ceased to function normally. It was broken. Now, how many of you have ever said, I can't drive my car, it's broken? Do you mean it's been torn in half? You don't mean that. You mean it doesn't function normally. Okay? It's not functioning the way it's designed to function. It won't drive or whatever. Okay? And so his body ceased to function normally. It was broken by its death on the cross. And just when bread is broken and the two parts are separated from one another, so the two parts of Christ, his body and his soul were broken apart from each other, and therefore his body was broken. So when someone dies and their soul is separated from their body, their body is said to be broken. It's rendered asunder. Um, it no longer functions like it's supposed to. So this breaking of bread is symbolic of his death for us. And each time we see the bread broken, and torn asunder were to think of the tearing of Christ's soul and body apart from each other for us. So when I walk down here and I pick up that bread and I hold it up, the reason why I do that, I do that on purpose. It's not like just something I thought to do. I'm trying to imitate what Christ did and bring out the symbolism of the breaking of his body. I say, this is his body, which is broken, and I, I break it right in front of you, okay? So you can hear it, and so you can see it, and so it will bring in your mind the fact that his soul was, was broken away from his body, and that was uh, the cause of his death. So that's where this term breaking of bread comes from. Now, I want to just quickly review all eight of these names and I want us to think about the application of them to us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, the Lord's Supper is so charged with significance and meaning, it demands out of us the high, highest level of mental engagement if we're going to get all that's going on in the Lord's Supper. So when... Uh, each of these names tell us something about our attitude and conduct at the Lord's Supper. So the word ordinance tells me that here's something that is commanded by God and therefore I dare not neglect it or ignore it. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come with a sense that I am doing this out of obedience to God's command. So, so why are you going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's a declaration on your part that I'm in submission to God's laws. It's an ordinance. 
Okay. And then the word Eucharist tells me that when I'm sitting here participating in the Lord's Supper, this is to be a time of thanksgiving. Do I have a really thankful heart this morning that Jesus Christ redeemed me and saved me? Am I thankful to him? Do I express that thanks to him? So we need to offer the sacrifice of praise continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So there's this sense of submission. There's this sense of thankfulness. And then the word sacrament tells me that this is a meal that is unique from all others with a special significance. And therefore, I don't treat it as common and I don't treat it as ordinary. I don't have a ho-hum attitude. Oh, well, here comes the elements and, or an attitude of flippancy. Okay, there's a, a, a real reverence. Uh, in respect for what these elements are, what they mean, who they represent. And we recognize that this is um, uh, a specially significant uh, time. And then um, the word mass tells us I have to be properly qualified to partake. And so we always have an exhortation to um, regarding the Lord's Supper to people. And I say, you know, if you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake. And if you're not, we ask you to abstain because you're not qualified to partake. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I have good reason to believe that I am a Christian? And have I professed that belief in the waters of baptism? Am I living in such a fashion that that belief has basic credibility? Um, so it's a time when we evaluate our qualification. And then the word, the Lord's Supper, means that the meal belongs to the Lord. It is for the Lord. It is provided by the Lord. And so therefore, the Lord should be the focus of our mental process. We shouldn't be thinking about, now, let's see, what's on my grocery list that I need to pick up on Monday, you know, while we're celebrating the Lord's Supper? We're to be focusing on the Lord. His glory is to be our foremost consideration. And then the word communion means that it's a time to engage in fellowship with the Lord and with each other. And so as we partake in this meal, we're thinking about Jesus Christ and we're talking to him in our hearts and we're looking around us at our brethren and we're saying to them silently, but nonetheless, uh, truly, you people are one with me. You're one in my heart. I'm one with you. And we have communion together. We've all been baptized by one spirit into one body and have all been made to drink into one spirit, uh, whether Jew or Greek, bond or free. Um, we're all, all one. And then the word, the Lord's table, tells me that as I sit at this table and partake of this meal, I am pledging my loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so we ask ourselves, how have I been doing? Have I been loyal to Christ? And how can I be more loyal to Christ in the month to come? Um, as, as I sit at his table. If, if I'm going to eat his food, that means I need to be his trusted friend and I need to be his, his familiar friend. And then finally, the word breaking of bread tells us that his lovely person was torn into two pieces. His soul was separated from his body for the sake of my redemption. Am I grieved and humbled by what my sin cost that Jesus' soul had to be torn from his body, broken from his body, so that I could be saved from uh, my sins. So all of this is going on in our minds, hopefully, while we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. All these, these thoughts are, are coming and going. And, and one thing 
you know, when, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, um, <clears throat> you can just go through these names in your mind and let them provoke you to uh, proper attitudes of submission and of thankfulness and of reverence and of self-examination and of being Christ-focused and fellowshipping with Christ and pledging your loyalty and expressing your thankfulness for the breaking of, of his body on your behalf. So we see how important these names are. And we need to think about the significance of the terms we use and use them thoughtfully and intelligently and reflect upon the application that they have to us uh, when we use them. And so just as the great variety of the names of God tell us a great deal about God's person, so the names attached to the Lord's Supper introduce us to the riches of its significance and its application to us and our involvement in that ordinance. All right, are there any questions? Okay, well, hopefully in the next hour, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it'll be more significant to you than it was. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for giving us this ordinance with all of the richness it contains and the meaning and significance it conveys about our Savior and about our salvation. And Father, we pray that we might rightly participate and discern that this is a special sacred meal. And Father, may we sanctify it in our hearts. May we be filled with thankfulness. And may we, as we participate each time, recommit ourselves to loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we might receive all the grace and blessing that you intend to convey through this ordinance as we enjoy it together this morning. May Christ be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.